Welcome to Don't Despair, a podcast dedicated to the Genesis role-playing game published by Fantasy Flight Games. Each episode, we take a deep dive into higher-level concepts of Genesis to help players and game masters get the most out of their games. Hey everyone, I am Scott Drainsmith Zumwalt. Uh, welcome back. Uh, to today's episode, we're going to be talking about encounter design, uh, specifically with combat encounters. We're going to cover social encounters on another episode. So to reintroduce everyone, uh, we have with us Rob. All right, Rob Iowarian Alexander, say hello. Hey, everyone. Then we have Guillaume Corlal Tardif. Hello, everyone. Next up is Anastasia Steele. Wait, no. Hey. Anastasia Steele. Yes. There we go. Matt, that Matt, Mensch. Buenos ding dong diddly dias. And lastly, we have Zach, Big Head Zach Gaskins. What's up? So we're going to jump right into it. We're talking about combat encounters, specifically how you design your combat encounters. So we're going to cover social encounters in a, in a future episode. So first off, we're going to start with Rob. Uh, what is the first thing you do when you're designing an encounter? My first uh, thoughts and process when I'm designing an encounter is what I kind of want to see the players go through, um, whether it is a combat that they have to get past such and such um, enemy to achieve a goal, like maybe not necessarily a boss, but they have to face some mooks in order to enter a facility, castle, whatever, or if it's going to be a case of maybe they just need to fight them because these guys have kept harassing them and they only understand fists or, you know, something like that, where there's just what is the defined kind of goals and possible outcomes if they win, lose, or even if they can win. Yeah, so just kind of the idea of what is this combat going to accomplish and what might they try to accomplish by fighting these people. Um, most of the time, I try to prepare with the idea that just about anyone they meet that gets in their way may end up being a combat. I completely agree with what Rob was trying was saying, is that um, you really you want to know why this encounter is happening. And I really like the idea of constructing almost every NPC as a combat-ready adversary because you never really know what your players are going to do. Um, plot doesn't really survive contact with players. Like Sometimes you make a social adversary and they really want to punch him, and you have to roll with those punches. You can really make a social character very punchable if you try hard enough. Sometimes you don't have to try with certain players. Yeah. Okay, uh, Guillaume, what is one of the first things you do when you're designing an encounter? When designing a combat encounter, I start by checking how many encounters I think the players will face in that same session, because depending on the, the, what's, what are the, the skill set of your characters, they may, not sustain, um, they may not sustain more than one encounter, or a big encounter during a, a session. Like if they have to go through 
waves of encounters, depending of the, on the kind of session you have. Maybe that specific adventure is about like dungeon crawling. They are entering a, a castle or whatever, and they have to go through multiple encounters. You cannot have the adversaries they're facing to be too tough because if they are drained out after the first encounter, they won't be able to, to get through the rest of them, depending on the, their resources, their painkillers, healing potions, or whatever. So one of the first thing I, I do when I'm designing an encounter is how much resources I expect the players to deplete on that encounter. If they're, they're, I don't know, like traveling from one place to another and they have an encounter on the road, then the encounter will probably be more difficult to uh, to win if th that's, the fr that's the only encounter they're going to have to face that session or that day before being able to healing up and so one of the first things you consider for designing an encounter is where does that encounter fit within that adventure yeah exactly okay anastasia yes what is one of the first things you consider when you're designing an encounter um i consider the strengths and weaknesses of my players and of my characters of their characters i should say so, for example, when you have a party that consists of largely social characters and characters that succeed through cunning as opposed to like brute strength, you don't want to throw something at them that they can't handle. Conversely, sometimes you might want to challenge your players in, and your characters in areas where they are deficient. So the same party composed of uh, scoundrels and social characters facing off with, um, I don't know, a fully armored knight that they cannot hit because his defense is so high might prompt them to solve that problem in a way that's not just a straight out slugfest, you know, might prompt some nonlinear thinking. So, uh, yeah, try to think, well, do I want to challenge my players directly? Do I want to make them, um, consider alternate problem, alternate approaches to encounters, that kind of thing. So one of the things that that I do that you're you're talking about there is is when you you have to consider your PCs very specifically um, for the encounter. Uh, damage versus soak going both ways is probably the biggest concern for a combat encounter. If all of your players have like an average damage of six, any of the adversaries should not have a soak any higher than six because they won't be able to do any damage at all or that they'll be relying only on the the damage of the roll and it's the same the other way around you don't want your your adversaries to uh butcher your, your pcs either so matt what is one of the first things you do when you're designing an encounter I usually start out with a goal of the encounter because I can never tell if it's going to come to blows or not. Uh, so I have to determine what is the purpose? Why are we getting these dice out? What are we? What do I hope that the PCs will accomplish or gain from doing this? Uh, and that informs everything else. What are some examples of that? Let's say that you're... PCs have uh, a valuable cargo, maybe it's livestock, and they're trying to offload it with the face. And you wouldn't think that that would be something that would come to blows, but I've 
had multiple experiences where the intent that I started out with originally with the encounter didn't necessarily end up how things shook out. And so I try to approach every encounter with a few basic principles, which we can discuss later. Okay. Uh, and Zach, what, what is the first thing you do when you're designing an encounter? Well, uh, not to reiterate on things that people have already said, but uh, one of the things I look for is uh, pacing in terms mm -hmm. of the time that is spent within the encounter itself and the urgency that both parties or multiple parties have in resolving the encounter one way or the other. So for example, um, you know, from the player's perspective, they're trying to get to the bad guy who's trying to make an escape. So they want to end the combat quick. So I expect them to use tactics that either attempt to get by the, uh, the adversaries or to put them down quickly or to incapacitate them quickly, even if that doesn't mean killing them or doing something horrible. Conversely, if I'm playing adversaries who their purpose is to delay the PCs so that the nemesis can get can escape, I make sure to con consider the type of activities they're going to perform in the combat to stall the players, whether that's um, weakening them, inflicting critical injuries that make them take longer to do the things they need to do, if that's to perform narrative activities in the scene that create de those delays. Um, so it's important to note whenever you're setting up a combat encounter, who is in a hurry and who is not? Who can take their time and who cannot? That's a good point. Mm -hmm. So Rob, do you have an overall method that you use when you're making a combat encounter? Honestly, most of the time, a lot of my combat count encounters are just uh, I'm going to throw things at my players and try and look through either your NPC guide or... Um, Which NPC guide is that? The something something. Oh, you must be referring to the Adversary Anthology. There we go. I knew there was alliteration. Um, yeah, so I flipped through that, and I've uh, I've thrown a slightly modified ancient black dragon at my players uh, because it did fit the moment of them fighting the avatar of a god. I've flipped through just to find a quick batch of mooks to just represent, you know, drunken guys they've pissed off in a in a tavern or whatever. Um, usually, it's I'm pretty reactive with what I pick and what I'm throwing at them, uh, just kind of going by whatever flavor catches my eye at the moment, rather than planning out, oh, I'm going to have them fight this sort of thing now and that sort of thing then. I just, there's going to be a combat, and it'll be whatever whatever look good at that moment. So you, you really fall back on how the narrative dice in general kind of has this flat progression that where any kind, any level of character can almost fight any of the available adversaries in any of the books. Yeah. Um, I, it also does like others had said with, uh, you do have to be 
conscious of what your characters are able to do. If I know my group is not very combat worthy and I want them to hopefully run away, uh, obviously that plan seldom survives when faced with actual players. But uh, when I want them to run away, I definitely will either uh, start adding insurmountable odds by, well, could have been one minion group, now it's three, or there's a couple of rivals or an adversary or two or whatever, just to put the pressure on. But the dice also seem to like to play their games. And most of the time, my plans end up going with my side losing anyways when I'm running it. So. The dice have their own say, and I just go with that too. Yeah, dice tell a story. Dice for the dice gods. Guillaume, do you have an overall method for when you're designing an encounter? One of the things I'm looking for is the number of players I have, because whatever you're showing at your PCs, the action economy is actually very, very, very important in Genesis compared to, let's say, when I was playing Pathfinder, you could have a horde of a lord, a horde of weaklings character, weaklings adversaries, like bunch of goblins or whatever, and your PC could just fend them off. But in Genesis, even the most the most weakling you can get, let's say, a kobold, if in minion groups. They can still challenge uh, experienced characters. So action economy is very a big thing here. So I, I always check how many PCs are going to act like and are combat, uh, combat able. You're making a really good point, though, with the action economy and with how Genesis handles it. Because with a full minion group, they are a lot more dangerous than having five individual goblins like in Pathfinder. You know, a party can steamroll a group of goblins in two rounds, whereas, you know, two to three groups of goblins, if they were minion groups, can be a lot more difficult for a party to do in that same amount of time in Genesis. Exactly. And I remember when I was first experiencing with uh, back in, uh, with Star Wars, uh, I remember that. The first time I dropped in a minion group of stormtroopers, I was really surprised by how challenging that was for the PCs. Like it was one of my first combat I designed. So I had that, uh, I think it was Jedi warrior, or I don't, I don't remember the carrier, um, whatever. It, it was like a combat a, a experience character with like three ranks and lightsaber or whatever. And yeah, he was cutting those through uh, the stormtroopers, but when they was their turn, if they was aiming at him, they could really damage, like critically wound the character. And I couldn't put more, more stormtroopers, or else even like the Jedi with lightsaber will, will get down by just simple stormtroopers, normal stormtroopers, which is basically the most common enemy you're gonna find in Star Wars. So it's about the same thing in Genesis as well. You punch, you put a bunch of goblins, and they're gonna hack through your PCs, even if they're really combat experience. Oh yeah, the use of minions as as a concept in Genesis and being kind of a unique idea compared to other systems with combat mechanics, just basically to to save the time to say, oh well, if you have 
five or so of these mooks and they all have terrible stats but you know playing the odds one in five of them is going to hit so that's how the uh the probabilities get resolved by having the number of members in the minion group uh, increasing the uh the effective damage that's being done minions are in fact incredibly dangerous when used properly in the system anastasia what is your overall mm -hmm. method for combat encounters um like i said before consider the strengths and weaknesses of my characters of my pcs and then um again kind of flip through the um adversary anthology pick out a few things have them ready on the table but also just consider other means of resolving an encounter other than combat just because like yeah um the players for example would want to fight a bunch of guards but there's also a chance that they might want to talk to them you never really know like uh, all of my attempts to like predict the actions of my um of my players and my character and their characters uh i have about like a 40% accuracy rate so <laughs> that's it's good, best huh? to account for the other 60 <laughs> so you like to make sure there's some other avenues of resolution or exit yeah just because sometimes they want to kill stuff uh, kill people and take their money but sometimes they want to talk to npcs especially if that npc does a funny voice so am i being prompted right now yes oh well, come on out, Skeeter. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna let that one sit there for a minute. We can't let them have Skeeter just yet. No, Skeeter's too powerful. Oh, another thing, actually, um, I like to think about the environment, the setting, what environmental hazards, what things can the players use to resolve the encounter. So, for example, if there is um, a room. And in that room are the party and a group of powerful minions or a bunch of minions and a nemesis or a rival, right? And there's also a door that one of the characters can open by uh, picking a lock or hacking it or something like that. So kind of giving, um, considering the environment, like mm -hmm. cover, environmental hazards, escape routes is also a good thing to think about when designing an encounter. I think it's a very good point. If you have multiple encounters, let's say you're raiding a castle with guards or whatever, and you have multiple encounters, if every encounter is about the same, like you open a door and you get a room full of guards or goblins or whatever, if you don't put different uh, environmental elements or hazards, all those combat will kind of be the same. So it's kind of cool to add other elements like you may have different uh, lighting levels so the characters will have to cope with the fact that they need to to have a torch light on or something so maybe the, the tank character will have to uh, remove it uh, to put down their shield to carry a torch or something uh, you may have cover elements like let's say you're entering a room and there are there are archers waiting for the pcs but they are all behind crates or whatever from the from the get-go so as the pcs enter the room they're already at disadvantage fighting the opponents so i think putting different uh, di different elements for 
multiple encounters that will make them more unique, even if at the core, it's the same enemy, it's the same adversary, it's the same goblins or whatever. So I think it's an inter interesting point to exploit the environment. At the risk of falling into what many know as the chest-high wall syndrome of Mass Effect 2, um, when you get into an area that you fully intend for a combat to take place, you need to be incredibly descriptive and colorful with with the way in which you describe the elements in the room, the shape of the room, to give them an idea of this is a place you can play around in, and I and by giving them that that creative juice, you're essentially saying please take what I have and run with it, spend story points, add to it, because I'm basically giving you opportunities to just to use the things I'm I'm saying because we're about to have a combat and you can interact with the things I'm talking about. I like to describe spaces as best as I can, uh, not only for the tactical reasons of the combat that may or may not be occurring, but also for the, the ambiance. You've got you to set a stage, right? You gotta, you're telling the story, so give it some set dressing. You do want to you know set the stage everywhere the players go but is it as important that they know that there's a bunch of tables and and barrels and whatever in a room where all they're doing is just going to rest for the day maybe not but during a combat you really want to draw as vivid a picture as you can so that they know that they can duck behind that table you know they can they can spend their advantage kick something over and hide behind it or shoot up at a at a chandelier with their bow and have it drop on the enemy or you know you you want them to know that the environment is full of opportunities for them instead of just here's a cube enemies over there you're over here and there's some doorways around you you know you, you really want as bright and as vivid as a picture as you can get even compared to when they're just going through a room, um, you know, you want to kind of draw attention to things in, in in other rooms, like you know, there's statues and and paintings and and things that could be something to draw their attention. But that's you know a discussion for another uh, episode, obviously. But you know, you, you really want them to feel like, okay, I know what this room's like, and I can plan, and I can be that little bit tactical. Because I mean, with Pathfinder, you have a map. Usually, you know, you grid, you draw out everything and you're like, yeah, there's stuff here, there's stuff here and you get your pluses and minuses, whatever. But with Genesis, because it is that more abstract with the range bands and, and you know, you, you can add boosts and setbacks and you have all the environment to interact with. It's just nicer if they know there's a lot of stuff that they can start to interact with without even having to start spending points just for that. You know, it gives... It gives them enough. So, yeah, you, you've touched on a number of things, and uh, I agree pretty much wholeheartedly with uh, the setting being critical. I mean, it's it's one of the four basic elements that every encounter is going to have. That said, I spend a lot of time uh, trying to design, like you said, in, it, the space to be interesting. And there was a supplement for the star wars role-playing game the environmental set pieces and those were 
a generic-ish set of places that you could have adventures and have encounters and have uh, specific results that you could use to inform how you spend uh, your triumph, how you spend your, your threats, your advantage, all of these things. And I think that that's an interesting thing to do. And that's one of the things that I, I enjoy doing is building these set pieces that can be uh, reskinned and, you know, you slap a coat of paint on it and, Hey, now you got a cantina and now you've got the nightclub and they're under the hood. They're the same thing. It's, it's all how you dress them. And then they can, already start out being a little bit interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the amount of detail you've put into the environment. Uh, with Genesis, players do have that opportunity. I think a, a few of you touched on this with the story points of putting more things in there. And I think that maybe some people go with too much detail in how they mm -hmm. design their environment, right? So like there's a table here, there's a table here, there's no other tables here. Right. But we want to say there are an amount of tables. There's tables about. Right. That's that's the level of description that we get. So when a player goes, is there a table right in front of me? We can be like, well, spend a story point and there'll be a table right in front of you. Or, you know, there's you said there were bookcases. Uh, how many books are there on there? Can I grab one of these books and throw it? Is the is the is the bookcase attached to the wall? Can I pull it down easily or is it too heavy? We'll spend a story point and it's the exact kind of bookcase that you want it to be. That uh, you describing too many things is a problem in the, in fiction, they call that Chekhov's gun and they expect that uh, a reader expects that by the time you finish the story, somebody will have shot the gun. So if you are spending a lot of time on your details, they should be something that's relevant to the scene. But in a role-playing game versus, you know, a fictional story, you have a little more control. So I've had experiences where I've used a map that we sat down just as a rough guideline of what the situation was. It, it looks neat. Uh, you know, it's a whiz-bang kind of thing. And the players took from the map, they said, well, this control says tractor beam control. Can I use that? I was like, well, of course you can. And they completely changed the nature of the encounter on me. It was nothing that I had even thought of to happen. And just by using an environmental detail that I didn't even plan for, everything changed. And it made it for an interesting encounter. Yeah, it's part of the, the improv rule of yes and, which is to say that you never matter-of-factly tell the players that they cannot do a thing. You either say that they can do a thing and then you respond to the thing that they have done. Or you say, if you have to turn them down, you give them opportunities that are relevant to the thing they were attempting to do. So, you know, basically, if, if, they're, if for whatever reason, it's not appropriate for them to have a table in front of them, given where the, the room that they're in. You do just you do give them other ways in which they can immediately take advantage of their environment, um, because you know, I'd like to think that no, uh, as we've said before, no plan survives contact with the PCs. No room design survives encounter with the PCs. So you should feel free and excited to change things to keep the the momentum of the story going, to keep everyone's uh, attention, rather than to disappoint them or to lower their spirits when the thing that they've encountered is not what they were expecting. 
I want to agree with um, Zach about yes and and um, giving your players options because in the end, I think as a GM, it's very important to be a fan of your player characters. Like, um, your players want to do cool things. They want their characters to do cool things. And you want to have fun. So you want to give them the opportunity to do the cool stuff. Maybe not the way they want to initially. Because, oh, I turn on this thing and it kills every minion in the room. Does not really make for a good resolution like mid-combat. But you want to give them opportunities to shine. You want them to win. And, um, you know, to have something to talk about after the game. Like, oh, that was so cool. You know, the way we, I don't know, punched the snake monster. Or threw a magic book at the goblin. Is winning always the objective of the encounter? I, I think that's maybe part of the goal. Is maybe it's, a, it's necessary to deplete their resources or to use it to drive them in another direction. Without, you know, we don't want to call it railroading, but... If you always win, then that's, I can imagine that that's maybe not fun all the time. Sometimes you have to lose to learn a lesson. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that part, Matt. Uh, in my, one of my runnings of my Something Strange setting, I, the players encountered a werewolf for the first time. And I wanted to convey the extreme power of these werewolves over them because they've been just wandering into places randomly shooting everybody and just cock walking right out the door so i was like all right you guys that's not going to happen this time so i designed this npc werewolf to just absolutely wreck everybody um and that's when they learned that they are mortal and the rest of the game how they played it was completely different and beautiful so, Matt, back to you. What is your overall method for making your combat encounters? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's fairly in-depth because I spend a lot of time in prep designing generic things, generic NPCs, if I feel like I can't just flip through the cards or the uh, anthology and find what I'm looking for. 99% of the time I can. But sometimes you need that special something different. So I start out with the goal in mind, but there's, I consider four basic elements that you have to have in every encounter. It doesn't matter what kind of encounter you have to have a setting, a place where it happens. You have to have the characters, you know, who's involved. You have to have an activity and right? what's going on. And then the results, like, why are you doing this? And generally that result should reflect the goal. Doesn't always, maybe they don't achieve it. And that informs how you move forward. Uh, based upon that, I generally will take it. It depends if I get excited about one certain detail, like I, I like the setting, I want to put something in here, then I'll work on that first. Uh, sometimes it's the reward. Like I have to figure out why do they do this? You know, we have a goal, but what is it really? They, they want to get the MacGuffin. Well, what is the MacGuffin? Uh, what does it represent to how the story progresses or what does it, in my overarching plot, what effect does that have that changes the clockwork motion of everything that's going on? Uh, with that, you also have your characters. And uh, sometimes it's named characters, sometimes it's not. I'm often used to 
having to do a lot of this on the fly. So that's why I've boiled it down to these few basic bullet points. And that's even when I design them purposefully ahead of time, I start out with bullet points because then I'm not reading a page full of text to figure out what's next. I look down, I see four words, good to go. If I don't use it, I cross it out. I didn't spend an hour designing it. I think efficient use of time and prep is probably another topic, but those are the pieces that I I try to consider right from the get-go. Yeah, I think we're going to do a whole episode on GM prep later. Oh, yeah. And story design. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the midst of us talking about GM prep and uh, the the need to have things ready for your players, you know, you're going to fight that urge to try and have every possible uh, opportunity covered like what if the players do this or what if the players do that and this is something i I struggle with as i'm writing my own adventures right now (laughs) because uh you don't want them to feel railroaded but you also don't want to feel like you have to then think about all the possible ways uh, that players can go and Um, you can't uh like briefly i uh i go with the three railroad idea which is any given situation where players can have choices Think of the three most likely things they'll do and plan for those, but don't do more than three because chances are good that they pick something that's not one of those three. You can probably adapt one of those three ideas to, um, you know, at least stat wise. And also bear in mind that, uh, you know, we have the average stats of a, of a character for a reason. So if a person is good at the thing they do, give them, uh, two greens and a yellow. If they are not so good, just give them a couple of greens. You don't have to overthink um, when you have in- surprise NPC skill checks. You don't have to uh, think too hard about what it is they're doing. You know that's why the uh, difficulty dice, where the average uh, difficulty is two, because that represents average opposition. And occasionally you put in a red. So Rob, uh, can you talk to me about maybe something you've learned? about making encounters after having done it many times? Um, I found that I'm a lot less scared to react by either throwing more at my players um, than I thought maybe they could handle, especially since even with minion groups and rivals and adversaries of varying powers, Genesis is overall pretty forgiving. You know, it's it's so hard to actually kill anyone that you can still present a challenge and still make them afraid without the fear that you're going to outright kill them. I mean, I've run a Genesis campaign for, I think it was about a year, and we capped it when a player died, but it was a concerted effort plus luck of the dice. And it was just one of those things like, I found I could throw uh, umpteen dozen uh, groups at them. And then if it was something where I didn't want them to die right then, and the story was more just to slow them down, I could just as easily just have them retreat or spend my points to, you know what? I want to drag this out a little more, spend a point reinforcement showed up and it just let me time things better, like for both session length, as well as giving a bit of uh, a bit more challenge or taking away some challenge. Okay, uh, Guillaume, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, some things you've learned after making encounters a bunch? One of the things I learned is when designing a boss battle, 
when you have like that final fight of the dungeon or or uh, of the adventure, even though you, your adversary is well, it's first of all it's going to be a nemesis probably, but even if you make it quite challenging, if it's alone, it's going to go down quickly. I remember the first time I came up with such battle, there was one evil guy fighting a crew of four PCs, and even though he could, well, not one-shot the PCs, but, like, one hit against a PC, like, was able to raise that their wound um, just above, like, close to their threshold. Okay, so the, the PCs could not withstand more more than few hits against that 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 adversary but even then like he was acting only once per round so he, he fell he fell quickly in fact so just one bad roll for 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 that adversary and he, he missed and did not do any damage that round and the next round well he was already mostly dead so i think he survived like two or three rounds, and it was supposed to be a really challenging battle. So when designing such battle, like the climatic fight of the adventure, you want to have um, meat shield, basically. So you want minions, rivals to uh, back the, the the main adversary's effort, or else they, they're going to go down quickly. So action and economy is very important. So that's one thing. And the, uh, the other thing I realized after designing a few encounters, well, at running few encounters is that critical hits, critical injuries are mostly useful against minions or against the PCs. But when you're fighting rivals or nemesis, it's not as useful because uh, combats tend to be kind of short. So most of the combats I ran were between two to four rounds. So a lasting critical injury was just not as good as triggering an item quality, let's say burn or blast or something like this. So when you're fighting minions, it's actually cool because you're just killing one of directly without even calculating damage. But when you're fighting something else, not as useful. So when you look at the weapon table and you see weapons with a low critical rating, it really looks good at first. But most of the time, depending on how much minion groups you're encountering versus rivals and nemesis, it may not be as useful as it looks at first glance. So that's another thing I learned after running a few encounters. That's more of a player concern rather than a GM concern, though, right? Well, yes, kind of. But you have to take this into account as well when you're designing... Uh, when you're designing adversaries that the the players are fighting because when you look at their weapons what are the options they have against your 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 adversaries if you design just minions if they and they have a bunch of low crit rating weapons they're going to hack through your encounters pretty quickly oh i see so if you have only rivals and nemeses, you don't have to worry about those low crit weapons so much. But if you have a bunch of minion groups, maybe those low crit weapons are going to have more of an effect on your encounter than you than you realize at first. Yeah, exactly. And um, I'm personally running more fantasy stuff myself. So most of the 
players tend to carry swords. It's probably uh, something they 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 dragged from um, previous Pathfinder games we we played because sword was mostly the the best overall weapon. So now they have those crit uh, critical two rating weapons, and they're just hacking through minion groups with their with their low critical um, rating swords. They were they're hacking easily through minion groups. So as soon as I put a rival, other weapons with different qualities, like let's say Pierce, Knockdown, Burn Blast, they prove more useful against these adversaries. So it's good to have different kind of adversaries in the same battle to balance the kind of weapon the players are using. Matt, talk to us about what you've learned after making combat encounters a, a bunch of times. Absolutely. The uh, important thing to note is that not all of your characters are combat characters, and I'm sure everyone listening to that uh, knows and has felt that pain that you've got the the Wookiee Marauder or you know your giant paladin with the big sword, and then you've got the wizard that's one hit and they're down. And how do you balance between having uh, minions that can challenge your combat characters without just completely destroying your non-combat characters. And I think by providing inside the encounter multiple goals uh, to uh, complete the encounter, and we're not talking like the overall goal of the encounter, but we're talking like give them something to do, give them something that contributes to the success that the party uh, wants from that. And that could be interacting with the environment. It could be, uh, preventing, uh, you know, the evil wizard from completing his spell. Uh, it could be any number of things, but you just you want everyone to have some task that can contribute to the success. And having, say, a doctor that doesn't have anything to do could be boring, or you know, that that's one of the things that I've run into. And so now I I try to head that off at the past. And it's also one of the things I try to do when I'm uh, trying to assemble pieces of an encounter is is make it so that it's not just about uh, the beating on the other guy until you win. There could be other uh, activities in play at the time that, and that actually works better when the characters are a little more experienced. Is if you want to scale your encounters without just throwing more minions at them, well, give them a time limit. Give them uh, a, a dangerous environment and and make it so that doom is going to happen if they don't complete X before Y. Uh, but again, you don't want to leave them in a place where if they don't complete the this certain thing, that the story grinds to a halt. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that, especially with the timer kind of thing. I did a similar mechanic in my brain drain adventure that's available in the Foundry. Uh, but it's for the whole adventure rather than a single encounter. But I think that the players will feel that time crunch through the whole thing and during each encounter. Do you make your time crunch obvious to your players or do you uh, keep that hidden? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think in the case of brain drain, it's an option for the GM, but I say how to describe what they would know. Um, there is an event in the beginning of it that lets the players know that something is going to be happening within a short amount of time. 
but actually showing them a clock can be helpful in, in many encounters. However, that clock is shaped or painted. Yeah. And that, that's a, a mechanic I like to lift from the blades in the dark systems and use it all over the place to, uh, to ramp up the pressure. And especially if they can see it, but sometimes just not seeing it, but knowing that it exists is fun too. Because you're really playing on the player's emotions. And that's one of the key things that we as storytellers want to do is to manipulate the players themselves into feeling something. Or do we? Right. If I could just give a whole room of people extreme anxiety, God, that is a good feeling. That's great out of context. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take that sound bite and smoke it. Oh, man. <laughs> so, Rob. What are your considerations for encounter balance? But start with what you think encounter balance is. Okay. Uh, two factors for that. Uh, the amount of encounters per session and the strength of those encounters per session um, would be how I would define encounter balance. Um, as for the strength, once I've kind of ticked off the box that the non-combat characters can still contribute meaningfully rather than sitting there rolling failures and blanks and not really being able to do much in, in the combat itself, um, I'm pretty cavalier on the strength of things now. I will throw whatever and if it looks like it's not enough. I will just keep pouring gas on the fire until it's about time to barbecue, really. I mean, uh, I I don't really see a limit because I don't feel like it's it's something that it's going to... Um, I mean, within reason, if it fits a story. I mean, if they're in a place where you can't just keep having wave after wave or whatever coming, I won't do it. But in the places where it makes sense, I've never felt like my players were not having fun um i've i've had them tell me that you know they do enjoy when the combats do feel like there's work involved um and that it's not just in three rolls later i win as for the uh the other half of that with the amount of encounters that again it probably depends on on what kind of story we've got ourselves up to for the session Sometimes it may be a bit lean on the number of combats. Maybe it's only one or two, and maybe they're not going to be very hard. Uh, other times, maybe there's only one in combat, and it's going to be a big boss battle. You know, it's been built up, and it is going to be something that they're going to be fighting for their lives. Hopefully, if they don't win, they at least win from the uh, you know the the side that they got enjoyment from it. And they got to say, oh, that was a good session. Even if they, uh, you know, they walk away with their tail between their legs. I, I just wanted to add that uh, I'm shocked that everyone gets, we keep describing combat encounters as lasting like three rounds. And that's, unless it's like a really menial encounter, most of the ones that I've run have run significantly longer so it makes me wonder what do i do differently i mean we're not just talking longer over a span of period but we're talking number of rounds 
and even with a, a group of players, uh, four to five players that are frequently well-armed. Uh, I mean, these encounters tend to last a lot longer. So, um, to be fair, but, I'm pulling the number three out of the air, well, but you're not the only it's, one. It's, it's not my average anyway. Well, uh, but a, a number of people have alluded to that. And that makes me wonder what is, is that something that we should consider, uh, at the top? Like you, you, Obviously, for pacing purposes, you want to know this is going to run for 20 minutes or, or what have you. But how do you break that down into the mechanics and that your encounter design? Maybe that's a question for later. Um, I'm glad you asked because mm. I have a little formula for that. Mm. I believe somewhere in the core rule book, it does say how you want to limit your combat encounters or early end of your encounters two, I think, three to five rounds. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, they, they tend to go too long and it really steals the show and they get exhausting. Um, now, if you, mm -hmm. if you really want the whole focus of your session to be a single combat encounter, go nuts. But you have to know how to design the encounter in such a way to make that happen. Now, earlier we were talking... Um, Anastasia likes to know her PCs, right? And I said the biggest concern there is that the the damage versus soak of the PCs versus the NPC and then the damage versus soak of the NPC to the PCs. So if you know what that difference is, um, even if you just average the PCs, they're going to usually average seven to eight Eight is going to be about the damage they're going to put out, depending on your setting and all the weapons everyone has. Um, so if your adversary has a soak of averaging three to four, that means they're going to take damage from the PCs at about three damage, three to four damage every round. So do they have the wound threshold? to take three to four damage from every PC every round. Hmm. Right? So hmm. if you can, and that's assuming that the PCs hit every single round. All PCs hit every single round on the same NPC. So if you have a single adversary, everyone's just ganging up on them. This is the amount of damage that they can receive before they are out of the combat. So you figure that that damage that the PCs are going to be applying every round on average and give them the wound threshold to survive however many rounds you want them to survive. Hmm. Do you take into account familiarity of the players with the system? Because in my previous comment, I said these tend to last a lot longer, but time-wise, things really rolled quickly through there. How do you factor that in? Uh, how do you mean? Well, if you have a, a bunch of players that are newer to the system, they take a little bit longer to read the dice rolls and, and call them out. Whereas if you're more experienced, you may be able to grind through what you thought was going to take 20 minutes in under five or six or 10. Right. And so, so the amount of actual real world time is going to vary by the number of players you have and obviously how experienced they are with interpreting dice. And you can you know, help them along with that. But this, this, these considerations for damage versus soak with 
the wound threshold, that's purely number of rounds. Hmm. So if you're going to try and design an encounter to fit in a specific real-world time crunch, then, you know, the number of players has to be considered and, of course, their experience level. So if you're going to be saying, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to run this encounter at a convention, and I've got 45 minutes slotted per encounter to run over, you know, three hours or so, plus extra stuff, then, okay, our, my players are going to probably not be super experienced. I'm going to have to teach every single role. They're going to have to build their pool every time and not know how to do it. So the, you want to reduce the number of rounds that any particular adversary is going to be alive or in the combat. But if they're experienced and you want this to go along real-world time, then you're going to want more rounds. And you can use that damage versus soak versus wound threshold little formula I got there. For a combat encounter's length, the fact that, well, in my case, I'm mostly aiming for three to five rounds combat encounters, and mostly it's, most of the time, it's mostly around three more than five, mostly because when you're, when you're having your, your PC group, uh, mostly at the, um, at the beginning of the campaign where they are not really experienced yet, you have all these characters with different skill sets, and chances are you're going to have, let's say, on, on a typical party of four players. So you're going to have, like, the, the brown base, the agility base, or something like this. So chances are not all the players will have combat abilities, combat skills, and it's maybe maybe it's a bit early yet to have talents that can uh, cope up with the fact that you're lacking combat skills. So, like things like scatting tarot or um, what's the uh, inspiring rhetoric. So maybe you, you, your characters don't have that yet. So you're gonna have encounters on which you have like let's say two, like let's say a melee attacker and a, a range attacker, and you're gonna have maybe one or two other characters not combat focused and you don't want them to be useless for the the whole duration of the combat so the same way when you're having a non-combat encounter so let's say you're just like i don't know hacking a computer or disarming a trap opening a door or negotiating something you have your your combat oriented character at the back uh, of the scene and you don't want them to to wait for too long so it's the same thing inside combat encounters as well so if you have let's say i don't know you have a, a scholar kind of character so they have lots of knowledge skills maybe medicine or whatever but they have no talents yet that will actually help in combat and their combat skill is so low they're just gonna roll their two green or maybe just one green so you don't want them to sit for too long on the side waiting for a combat encounter to be done so in early experience levels, uh, I think having combat encounters that do not last too long is actually better because, yeah, they just don't stay put for too long. They they can go back right into the action as soon as the combat encounter is finished. Just to bring back the earlier point that you made, actually, about occasionally throwing things at your players that your player that you know your players cannot handle, like that werewolf, and that a lot of encounter balance concerns itself with how do I present my players with a challenge that they can overcome? But I also think that it should be concerning itself with how do I present my players with a with like a challenge that they cannot overcome, but also that will not kill them outright. Right. And I, 
think that consideration is about you know what is the damage of the npc versus the average soak of your pcs yeah and you can also just have uh, challenging adversaries that just go after strain you know you try to incapacitate your characters as opposed to like doing um, grievous bodily harm or something like that and also just adversaries that in that have like abilities that inflict like status effects um like you know triggering burn triggering blast and snare that kind of thing um, so am i the only one that doesn't actually balance encounters per se probably i think it's also just hard to balance them in genesis at least like harder than it is in like pathfinder 5e yeah i mean those have hard numbers we don't have a challenge rating we're not mathematically yeah you know that ba- uh not designed i mean we're designed to be a system of kind of uh, collaboration rather than pl- calculated opposition. Yeah, and um, and like some systems also have like uh, just like an approximation. Like Numenera has the has a number from like one to ten, and that's used for everything for um, adversaries, for like diff- for like difficulty of roles. That number just applies to everything across the board. Like when you read like about a creature in Numenera, it would be like rated as seven. So that means that any check targeting that creature or defending from that creature will have a difficulty of seven. So you would have to roll like a twenty-one or something like that to succeed on that. But Genesis doesn't even have that. Hmm. Yeah, I I guess uh, I I really I think that if you spend a lot of time designing your adversaries. Uh, to challenge your PCs, you're, you're doing it all right. But I think taking adversaries that were previously easy and making them more difficult actually robs the players of their sense of advancement where this, um, these goblins before were uh, easy and now they're, they're slightly less easy or still easy to the players. But to, to find a proper thing, they should be encountering maybe more dangerous creatures instead of amping up the existing creatures. Uh, th- that may be the extent of how I balance things, but I like to have the players feel like they're really good at what they're doing. They're the, the pinnacle of their career, even at a lower experience level. The Expanded Player's Guide, which is coming out later this year, is supposed to be giving us some kind of challenge rating system of some kind. And so we'll see what we get out of there. Mm, oh my. But until then, um, I think all the advice we've had in here so far is going to be pretty good. One thing about making easy adversaries more challenging, you don't really have to like beef them up. You just have to make them smarter. Hmm. So the one of the things that I like to think about is um, Tucker's Kobolds, which is an old D&D story about a lot of high-level PCs having to deal with a bunch of kobolds, which are very easy, like goblin-type enemies. And the way the GM kind of dealt with that was having the PCs, one, fight the kobolds in their own terrain, and two, have the kobolds set traps and just wage, like, ruthless guerrilla warfare on the PCs. It's like the goblins don't really get, have to get, like, magically beefier every time um, the PCs uh, learn earn more skill ranks or learn new talents, but, you know, their tactics are improving. They're learning from their experiences. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. Like, my, my GM has actually done almost exactly this, the cobalt encounter in one of my pathetic games. And it was terrifying because we went in, we're like very gung ho about it. 
yeah, now we, we are never going into any kind of tunnels ever again. There's nothing better than taking just overconfident, cocky PCs and just cutting them at the knees. Yeah, just put the fear of God on them. It's the mm. best. Sounds kind of adversarial, if you ask me. <laughs> adversarial GMing is not bad. There's a time and place for the kind of adversarial nature of, of, the, of uh, the game. But for the most part, yes, you, you should not be actively against your players. You should be rooting for them to win. But making sure the encounters edge into that area where they think they don't know if they're going to win, that's where the excitement is. And I think that's the, mm -hmm. that's the important thing about doing encounter balance correctly, at least the way I define it, is to get it so that it's, it's just in this little area of difficult. If it's too easy, yeah, it's exciting. We won. Hooray. But every combat that's like that, it's just too easy. And they're like, well, we don't really have to think about anything. It ceases to be tactical. And it ceases to be interesting if they don't have any interesting decisions to make. So if we can up that difficulty and make them really think about what they're doing, then I think that's where the excitement is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in some sense, if you get into a situation with your encounters where your players are rolling the same set of dice and don't even have to describe what they're doing every round, they basically settled into that rut and yeah, this is the this is the wall I'm hiding behind and I'm just going to fire from it until the until they're at a, uh, at their win threshold. If you make them have to consider every round if they're going to continue doing what they're doing or change their tactic, I say that's a good a good sign that you've got something interesting. Now we come to the segment, roll them bones. We're going to set up a scenario, I'm going to roll some dice. And I'm going to say what those results are, and we're going to figure out how each of us is going to interpret that role. So to start off, I'm going to set us up this encounter. This comes from an encounter I had with my players uh, in my Something Strange setting. And what's happened is the team has spotted some skunk apes lurking in an alley. The beasts are usually only found in the backwaters of Florida and certainly don't belong digging through the trash in a small Texas town. The PCs have engaged with the skunk apes and things are not going well for the heroes. They decide to cut bait and run. Dojo, our karate master, while holding his nose from extreme smell, karate punches one of the apes and then yells for Skeeter to hit them with his truck. Candy, our sharpshooter, is standing in the back of the truck, doing her best not to shoot her friends. After hitting the skunk ape with his truck and not doing the damage he hoped it would, Skeeter takes a different tack. Now, Skeeter has some dynamite because he works for the city filling potholes. Story point spend. <laughs> he yells for Dojo to get in the truck. Dojo attacks one last time, disengages, and scrambles onto the hood. All his maneuvers and actions have been used. Skeeter wants to light the dynamite, throw it out the window, and reverse the truck out of there. He's going to roll, and we're going to see what happens. So, if we look in the Something Strange book, 
Uh, Skeeter is an NPC. Uh, he is an adversary listed in there on page 34. Skeeter does not have any drive skill, nor does he have any rain to light skill. He has two agility, so we're going to give him two agility to do this. Two green, two green dice. Now, he's throwing this dynamite at about short range. So that is because he's not engaged with the skunk apes. He's kind of nearby. So that's what's what what is that? That's one purple, right? For short range ranged yep. attack? That's correct. Okay. Yep. Pretty easy. You know, you want to throw a setback on there since he's driving a truck. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna throw a couple setback on there. I want you to give Skeeter two setback because he's trying to do this one-handed while also driving a truck. So how is he holding the dynamite if he's doing it one-handed? Is it between his legs? Yeah, with so his feet. he's going to be lighting it with his um, his cigarette because he's always smoking because he is a dirty, dirty man. Don't smoke, kids. Don't smoke, kids. It's not attractive. Mm-mm, they're hard to keep lit. Okay, so so far I've got two, two ability dice, one difficulty dice, two setback dice. Can anyone think of a reason why Skeeter might get a boost die? Experience with dynamite specifically? Oh, that's that's good. He he throws dynamite all the time for the city, doesn't he? Filling potholes somehow. With dynamite. That now is a well-budgeted uh, department. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and job security. What Skeeter's going to do is, uh, this is pretty critical to the story that they get out of there alive. So Skeeter's going to spend a story point, and he's an NPC, so this is the GM doing this. So Skeeter got an upgrade, so he's going to swap out one of his ability dice with a proficiency dice. So that, that, that now puts us at one yellow, one green, one purple, two blacks, and one blue. Ready? Mm-hmm. Skeeter, Skeeter, Skeeter. Let's see if they make it out of there alive. The end result is going to be two successes and two threat. So Rob, given that scenario with two successes and two threat, what would you rule happens? With two successes, clearly the dynamite um, lands where he intended it to, uh, easily uh, hitting his primary target. With his two threat, uh, he's not going to be active activating any blast so anyone else around his target would be safe um additionally i would probably argue that at that point skeeter in attempting to do it either uh suffers a strain from pulling a muscle because of trying to throw this while steering a truck at the same time and uh perhaps even bumps the truck into something causing maybe a system strain to it because it was such a complex maneuver for someone who is not really trained in any of that. <laughs> but you're going to let him get out of there alive? Everyone escapes? But he's going to get out of there. He succeeds. He's going to get out of there. Okay. Now, you remember, you got Dojo on the hood and Candy standing up in the back. But it is only two threat. It is only two threat. Despair or a few more, and, and, and I would have uh, looked at them a little more closely. Okay. 
Are you going to roll separately for each of us? What do you guys want me to do? I mean, yes. I can, I can, we can, we can change it up to where a story point um, upgrades the difficulty instead. I mean, just getting different results might be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, just because there's only so many ways that two threads can go, and there's that's, five. That's true. So let's let's change it up. Okay, so for our next roll, we're going to change up the dice pool a little bit. Now, instead of getting that proficiency die, maybe I, uh, maybe I want I didn't, I didn't want them to succeed maybe so easily. So um, I'm going to upgrade the the difficulty instead. So I'm going to swap out that one purple for a red, for a challenge die. All right, so we got one success and a despair. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. Can I take this? Anastasia, what would you do with this roll? So it was one despair and one success. One, one success. So they do back out successfully, and Skeeter does hit the skunk cape with the dynamite. However, um, I think that Dojo is going to fall off the hood. It was a very abrupt maneuver. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That is fair. Oh, man, Dojo, you're off the truck! So now Skeeter and Candy are doing okay, but Dojo might get, some, might get wailed on by some apes next round. They thought they were out of there. Maybe Skeeter keeps driving. Mm -hmm. Dojo's left in the dust. That's a good use of a despair. All right. I'm going to keep that dice pool the same. I'm going to roll it again. So we, remember we, got, we got two greens. We got a red. We got two blacks and a blue. Who's next? I'll go next. We've got one failure. And three advantage. Ooh. All right. Matt, what would you do with that? All right. So Skeeter was trying to blow up some apes with that. He clearly failed at it. So I'm thinking Skeeter lights the, uh, the dynamite with a cigarette. And in the sparking of the fuse going off it made it harder for him to see so he couldn't quite get away and so in a panic he threw the dynamite out into the alley where the skunk apes are next to the dumpster and the the uh, dynamite goes into the dumpster and explodes and uh, to spend the advantages I would say there was something else flammable in the dumpster maybe there was some uh, illegal fireworks and that has the effect of, of exploding and making the skunk apes scatter. Awesome. All right, we're going to do one more. Okay. All right, we have no successes and two threat. Zach, what would you do? As Skeeter is attempting to light the dynamite with the cigarette, uh, he hits a chuck in the road, which causes him to drop his cigarette into his crotch and takes several points of strain from uh, singeing his uh, shortened curlies. Ouch. 
What happens to that dynamite? The, the dynamite is not set off. It is still very much in his lap. So you, that kind of plays along with the idea, to, in, at least at my table, that if you don't roll actual failures, if you net nothing, then all you've done is waste time. There we go. We just rolled them bones. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening to us talk about encounter design. We hope you learned something that will help you make your games better and easier to run. Before we go, I just want to give a little shout out to one of our sister podcasts on D20 Radio, The Forge. The Forge is Ian, GM Hooli Hulahan, and Chris, GM Chris Witt. They talk all about the new Genesis Foundry and interview folks about the work they have published there. The podcast is new, but Ian and Chris have been in the podcast business for a very long time now. Check them out. Don't Despair is a member of the D20 Radio family of podcasts. Don't Despair is a podcast created by fans and is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games. The views and opinions expressed are that of their author and not of Fantasy Flight Games. Genesis and all related trademarks are owned by Fantasy Flight Games. The content of this podcast is owned by Don't Despair and is provided for entertainment purposes only. Don't Despair accepts no responsibility for any injury, dismemberment, or death resulting from the use of the information contained herein. Consult the doctor if fun lasts for more than four hours. The Don't Despair podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 International License.